Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest, uh, David Clark, MD. He's president of the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association, a nonprofit that's dedicated to ending chronic pain, especially chronic pain, I guess, that may be called what's called a cryptic. You know, they, they don't really know where the, the origin is. As I said to him briefly offline, I'm sure that um, someone that has chronic pain and is not getting help from the medical system is just beyond frustrated. So we'll talk about that. I think this will be a very important topic. And uh, I appreciate you coming back, David. Thank you. Great to be with you, Rich. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Well, for people that don't know and haven't heard you before, can you give a little bit about your background? And then let's talk about the, the foundation, how it came to be. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm a board certified internal medicine and gastroenterology physician and practiced very conventional medicine with two thirds of my patients. Uh, but in the early 1980s, uh, I encountered a patient that I didn't know the first thing about diagnosing or treating, uh, even though I was, you know, eight years into my uh, medical education. So it came as a shock that a psychiatrist was able to cure that patient. I had no idea that such a thing was possible, that you could alleviate a serious physical condition just by talking to somebody. And these are patients that uh, don't have any obvious organ disease or structural abnormality or injury to cause their condition. You know, you do the diagnostic tests that we're all trained to do as physicians, and you don't find any explanation for why they're having chronic pain or illness. Uh, and it turns out that in those patients, the symptoms are very real, but they're generated by the brain, uh, much as phantom limb pain is generated by the brain. Somebody gets pain in the place where they have an amputation. There's no limb there anymore, but it still feels like it hurts there. And that's generated by the brain as well. So these patients are a great source of mystery and frustration for the healthcare system. Uh, most physicians are not formally trained in how to diagnose or treat them. But it turns out if you know what to look for, you can have outcomes every bit as successful as you can with anybody else. Um, a group of us from around the country, everywhere from Boston to Los Angeles and many places in between, found that we had all learned how to do this. And we came from different backgrounds. We had all different specialties, uh, both medical and mental health. And we came together to form what we call the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association. The psychophysiologic word is just a combination of psychology and physiology. It's the mind and the body in collaboration with each other, if you will. And we try to educate healthcare professionals and the public about this because people who go to the doctor and are not getting diagnosed they wander the system for years, uh, sometimes for decades. Uh, my personal longest illness patient was uh, symptomatic for 79 years. And even she was successfully treated once the issue was uncovered and, and successfully dealt with. So there's, you know, there's hope for everybody with this. But Quick question here. Um, do people present this way from, you know, were they healthy one day and then all of a sudden they have this problem? Or does this only seem to come after they've had certain other problems that somehow trigger it? 
you know, a lot of the time it just comes out of the blue. My very first patient was doing fine. You know, she wasn't under any particular stress that she was aware of. She was happily married. She was had two kids. She was working half time in, in a bank, which was a job that she enjoyed. And all of a sudden, in her case, she started having one bowel movement per month. And even taking four different laxatives at double the usual doses didn't make any difference. And she went to the university hospital in her local community, and they found absolutely nothing wrong with her. They sent her to us at UCLA, where we did specialized testing on the electromechanical properties of the bowel. And my department chair and I were absolutely convinced that this test was going to be abnormal because there was no other explanation that was possible as far as we were concerned. But we were wrong. That test was normal. Um, and I was doing her exit interview and stumbled on the fact that she'd been uh, sexually abused as a girl. Um, unfortunately, not just once or twice, but hundreds of times. I had no idea if that could be connected to somebody being physically ill 25 years later, but it turned out there was a very strong connection. The psychiatrist that I consulted was very well aware of this and cured the patient in less than three months of weekly counseling sessions. So yeah, this can come completely out of the blue for people, or it can come on gradually. The symptoms can, uh, in some cases, move from place to place. Other times, the symptoms are quite variable in how severe they are. Other people, there's more than one symptom. My personal record patient had 27 different symptoms that he personally was suffering from. He came to me with a printout from the internet, and he circled all these things that he he personally had. Even that patient, all of them went away with, with the correct diagnosis and treatment in about 30 days. So if we uncover the stress, and it's, it's always a stress that's producing changes in the circuits of the brain that then in turn produce the symptoms in the body. And if you trace it back to the causative stress, like the sexual abuse in the first patient that I mentioned, you can help people cope with that. And when you do, they start to get better. Now, sometimes it takes, you know, months of counseling or even years of counseling to get the outcome that we want for patients. But even those patients, they know they're on the right track. They can see that they're making progress and it's a tremendous source of hope for them. Yeah, that's very interesting. Are these always psychological problems that cause these physical disturbances or... Sometimes there's an underlying physiological cause. You can have both at the same time. It, it is possible to have uh, a biomedical problem that is made substantially worse by a psychosocial stress of one sort or another. But the majority of my patients, there was a stress involved. And this doesn't mean that my patients are, are neurotic or that they were weak in some way or they couldn't handle their stress. I would say my patients were, on the average, psychologically stronger than the average person. They were just coping with uh, very high levels of stress. Uh, I make the analogy sometimes that they are a bit like uh, Olympic weightlifters who've been asked to carry 50 pounds more than the world record for their weight class. So, you know, any weightlifter, no matter how good you are, if you're asked to carry that much of a load, your body's going to break down. You're going to feel weak. You're going to feel like you, you can't handle uh, what's going on. And my patients are, are very much like that. And when we show them how to put the stress down, then they realize how strong they were all along. And their physical symptoms, of course, uh, get much better. So what does it look like now? Are there established protocols that you can like readily or consistently diagnose that this is this kind of psychophysiological problem? Yes. How far very, have you been able to advance? 
Yeah, very much so. You know, I, one good uh, idea for your listeners is that on the nonprofit website, that, which is endchronicpain.org, we have a self-assessment quiz. Uh, it's only 12 items. It takes less than three minutes to fill it out. And it's set up in a way that the more questions to which you answer yes, the more likely it is that your condition, whatever it is, is linked to a psychophysiologic process or a mind-body process. But the process that I use uh, in my office um, has a, a series of steps to it. The first is just to get the, well, the very first is to make sure that there's no organ disease or structural damage. And assuming we've ruled that out, then we're looking for sources of stress in the patient's life. It could be anything bad that's going on in your life uh, at the moment, especially if there's a chronological link between when and where the stresses are happening and when and where your symptoms uh, are flaring up. Um, the next major area I look at is adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs they're called, which is pretty much anything that happened to you that you wouldn't want to have happen to a child of your own. And the more severe that was, the more long-lasting it was, the more likely it's having a long-term impact. And no, we can't go back and change what you experienced as a kid, but we absolutely can help you with a long-term impact. And there are, you know, three major areas of long-term impact that perhaps we can get into later. But in my initial evaluation, the last things I'm looking for are mental health conditions, depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress are the main ones. And they they are very frequently misdiagnosed or missed altogether in a primary care medical office uh, because they can manifest themselves physically uh, in people. You, know, you can have uh, the condition of depression, but you might not feel particularly depressed, even though you've got many of the characteristics uh, that qualify you as having that diagnosis. And it can be that the main manifestation is something in your body, whether it's a migraine or fibromyalgia or irritable bowel or trouble, you know, pain in your chest, difficulty breathing, low back pain is a very, very common one. Pain in the pelvis, bladder spasms, numbness and tingling in the extremities, huge long list of symptoms from head to toe. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. What are, um, and if you can, what are, what are some of the questions on the diagnosis list that's all, you know, you found either particularly uh, predictive or informative? Yeah, we've covered a number of those already. Uh, you know, are the symptoms moving around? Are they variable? And the very last question is, is quite telling for a lot of people, which is, if you learned that a child you care about was growing up exactly as you did, would you feel sad or angry? 
Many people who look back at their own childhoods, they don't necessarily recognize the reality of what they went through. None of us has a parallel life to compare ourselves with. So when we look back, we don't necessarily realize just how difficult it was for us. And I've had a lot of patients who say, no, my childhood was fine. My parents cared about me. Really, things were okay. But then I ask them, okay, well, imagine your own kid growing up in that same environment. And let's imagine that you're a butterfly on the wall of your childhood home and you're having to watch your kid try to cope with what's going on there. Would you be okay with that? Or would there be some things going on that would make you sad or angry or some things that you wouldn't do yourself uh, to your own kid? And very often in my patients, I will see their facial expressions change dramatically as they start to think about this. And that gets us into a discussion that things were maybe not quite so good as they used to think. And we can work with that. We can help people understand how much they went through. We can help them feel good about themselves for having overcome it. That's It's really important um, that if your childhood environment needed heroic perseverance to get through, that you give yourself some credit for that. What jumps out at me is um, it sounds like people, again, blame themselves in part or in whole for even the most horrific situations. Maybe that's why they react so strongly to that question. Like for them, yes. they're like, well, there's probably some part of them that thinks that, but someone else, like their kid, hell no, I'll rip their head off. Yes, absolutely right. You know, so many kids, you know, they don't have that many options for how to cope with what's going on. And so very often what they do is they try to be the best little kids they can be. They try to fix the situation. Uh, whatever it is, you know, a classic example is, let's say you have a parent who's an alcoholic. Uh, one of my patients at the age of eight was trying to hide her dad's liquor bottle so he wouldn't drink so much. You know, it's it's not appropriate for an eight-year-old to be their dad's alcohol counselor. Yep. And you're going to fail at that as an eight-year-old. And when you fail as an eight-year-old, you know, you feel like a second-rate or worthless human being, and that becomes absorbed into uh, assumptions about who you are as a person that can stay with you for decades. And it's part of the treatment to help people realize, you know, how that false assumption got in there, you know, who taught you to believe this about yourself, and how did they teach you this false belief? And when people see that, they can begin to flip the script. They can start to think, you know what, I actually did a pretty darn good job coping with that environment, and I actually should feel very good about myself as a kid for how much I had to deal with. So uh, I guess I'd ask you, what, what are some of the answers to some of these questions? Like you said, is it a consistent pain? Does it move around? So which of the answers points towards the psychophysiological uh, problem? Yeah, Prince good question. Yeah, I should have clarified that. If you imagine, the easiest way to uh, imagine it is if you've got a tumor or a fracture or an infection or something that's uh, inflamed, um, that's pretty much going to stay wherever it is. You know, you don't have tumors go wandering around inside your body. Little bits can break off in the circulation and set up shops somewhere else, unfortunately. But the main tumor typically just stays in one place. So if you've got pain, for example, that's moving from place to place, like one of my patients that I often present to my medical audiences had pain in her abdomen, but it moved from one corner to another on different days. And that's, that's a hallmark of a brain-generated, stress-related condition. Also, the you know variability of the symptom or having the symptom not be consistently triggered by the same action. So, for example, if you get pain in your back when you're sitting in your chair at the office all day, but 
when you're sitting at home for the same length of time and you don't get the pain, you know, your back doesn't know if you're at the office or at home. Only your brain knows that. Another example was a 16-year-old girl who had severe diarrhea uh, to the point where on her bad days, she was putting herself on a water-only diet and taking up to a dozen Imodium tablets by one o'clock in the afternoon. You're normally not supposed to take more than eight in 24 hours. And even with doing those things, she was still having diarrhea. Uh, and this was the part of the story that none of her other doctors had uncovered, which was that her bad days were on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On the weekends, she was fine. She didn't need any medication. She could eat whatever she wanted. And her gastrointestinal tract was entirely normal. So, you know, the large intestine does not know anything about the days of the week. It has no clue, right. you know, if it's Tuesday or Thursday. I mean, I, you know, it's dark in there. We have to bring our own light. Only your brain knows what day of the week it is. So naturally went looking for what stresses she was suffering on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And it was very, very obvious to her, which was that she played varsity soccer on those days. And she was very anxious about how she was going to perform in those games. Mm, crazy. So what about traditional psychology? Why isn't that able to address this? Why does it require the fusion of these two elements, these two disparate practices? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. But it turns out that the kinds of psychosocial issues that make people physically ill are often distinct from other mental health issues that form the core of training of mental health professionals. I probably shared this story the last time I was on your podcast, but it's important in answering uh, uh, your question because this was a patient who uh, had been evaluated by a psychiatrist at a major university, and he completely, or she, I honestly don't know the gender of the psychiatrist, but he or she completely missed the diagnosis in this patient, which was a major stress in this woman's life that was giving her attacks of extreme dizziness and vomiting six to 10 times every year for the previous 15 years, uh, had put her in the hospital, this university hospital, whose, whose name you know, you would know 60 times in those 15 years with no diagnosis. And the psychiatrist missed it, even though it was absolutely dramatically stress-related from uh, verbal and emotional abuse by the patient's mother. All of her attacks of illness were connected to interactions with the patient's mother that were always, you know, abusive in one way or another. And as soon as the patient saw this connection, that, you know, it was her mother that was triggering these things, as soon as we made it clear to her that that was what was going on, she had this revelatory light bulb moment. I can still remember her looking up at the ceiling and saying, oh my God, I can't believe this. And in her case, she was cured on the spot. She went home from the hospital the next day. She never had another attack just by becoming aware of this. But the psychiatrist missed it. He didn't know uh, to look for childhood stress. He didn't know to look for triggers in the present day. So much of uh, contemporary psychology, which largely consists of cognitive behavioral therapy, is aimed at helping people cope with things. Whereas the kind of psychology that I practice, pain relief psychology, uh, is aimed at relief leaving these physical symptoms. Completely different goal. I guess, I don't know, like when I've spoke to different people in different medical professions, they'll say, oh, well, that's not my area. Oh, that's not my area. And a lot of them seem to be very mentally siloed. Maybe that's why they don't uh, tie these two together and why it was necessary for you to deliberately have an organization that ties the two together. 
in order to get results. Yes, you no, know, you're absolutely right about the silos. We have the the medical silo and we have the mental health silo. You know, it goes all the way back to a 17th century philosopher named Rene Descartes, and he said the mind and the body are different. And you know, it is true that in thinking about these cases, there there is a different style of thinking. But anybody who is possessed of a neck has a connection between their brain and their body. And it's 40% of people who go to the doctor that have these brain-to-body symptoms. So in order to do a complete and thorough evaluation of the patients that are coming to see you, you've got to have at least a little bit of a comfort zone in both areas. That's where the best outcomes are achieved. Of the people that do realize, like, you know, I've been under, um, you know, sometimes a ton of stress and it makes me want to retch. You know, there you like, go. I'm like, whoa, whoa, you know, but I knew, you know, this only happens when it's like extreme and thank God it's very rare. If someone does recognize it, does that usually prevent them from having a problem like this? Is it only the lack of recognition that does it or are there other factors involved? Well, the lack of recognition is a huge factor. I mean, most of the people that I've worked with, um, they were not aware of the nature or degree of the stress that they were experiencing. I mean, sometimes, you know, they, they had an idea that something that was going on in their life was stressful, but they didn't realize the magnitude of it. They didn't realize the physical impact of it. One of the patients I briefly mentioned earlier who was having abdominal pain that moved from corner to corner of her abdomen, she initially went to one of my colleagues. She was, you know, referred uh, to him. And he's an excellent gastroenterologist, but he wasn't as clued into stress-related issues as he should have been. And he put this patient through the medical ringer doing every diagnostic test uh, he could think of, trying to find out why her belly hurt and finding absolutely nothing. So he knew of my interest, uh, of course, in mind and body causes of abdominal symptoms. So when he was done, he sent her over to see me uh, and he'd never asked her about stress in her life. And it, it turned out that she was suffering domestic violence, and, but she'd never thought to mention it to anybody. You know, two or three times a week, her partner was physically abusing her, but she'd never thought to mention it to anybody. She only mentioned it to me because I deliberately asked about stress. And it turned out that the, the violence with the partner had been going on for a period of time exactly corresponding to the length of time she'd had the belly pain. And we got her out of that relationship. I got the social worker involved. You know, she was at a good job outside the home, uh, so she could afford her own apartment. We got her out of that relationship into her own place. And less than two weeks later, she had no pain anymore. No, oh, well, that's amazing. So I know it depends on the situation. Sometimes when the recognition comes, like you said, it's an immediate result. When it's not, why? Does it just take time for these emotions that maybe have been buried for so long to just reconcile in someone's brain and then it can go away? Like, what, what do you think is happening when it, it takes multiple therapy sessions or multiple times? Yeah, everybody's different and everybody's different with respect to uh, their resilience, with respect to their uh, ability to recognize, especially the deeply repressed emotions and to be able to um, work with those and recognize those, you know, al allow themselves to, you know, kind of be consciously aware of them, put those emotions into words. Uh, one of the exercises that's been very helpful to my patients um, is to write a letter when, you know, when they've been mistreated or abused um, by a parent, 
to write an unmailed letter, not to mail it to the person, but just to write a letter, Dear Dad, for example, and put down all your thoughts and emotions about that person, both good and bad, uh, so that you can, by expressing emotions in words, uh, they don't need to be expressed via your body in the form of symptoms. But not everybody's ready for that right off the bat. One of my patients put me off for a year and a half. And even after the year and a half, you know, she tells me, look, I'm, I'm getting tired of you pushing me to write this letter to my dad. Uh, so I'll make a deal with you. I will write two paragraphs to my dad, but you have to promise you're never going to ask me to do it again. And I knew she had a very troubled relationship with her father. And I also knew that two paragraphs wasn't going to be nearly enough verbal expression of emotion to alleviate her very significant symptoms. But she was just insistent. So I said, okay, if that's the best you can do, I'll, I'll respect that and I'll, I'll make the deal with you. So off she went to write her two paragraphs. And she told me what happened when she came back for her follow-up visit, which was that after the second paragraph, she wrote a third paragraph. And then after that, she wrote a fourth paragraph. And then she couldn't stop. And she ended up with nine single-spaced typewritten pages. And her physical symptoms were 90% better after that. But she had to get to the point where she was ready. And everybody's different. Yeah, well, interesting. Well, also, too, you know, if you realize, let's say, uh, I don't know, you're your parents are abusing you and you internalize it as your fault. I guess even recognizing that is that's not enough. You still have to believe it with at least part of your, your being or maybe all of your being and then the healing can come. So I guess maybe that's why there's a there's a lag and sometimes multiple therapy sessions are required. Yeah. Yeah. What we're talking about is rewiring the brain. Uh, in a research program called the Boulder Back Pain Study, they actually saw this with magnetic resonance imaging, that uh, even after as little as eight sessions of pain relief psychology, the brains physically changed uh, in people who had had you know, an average of 10 years of chronic low back pain. And the pain, you know, in relation to that, the pain was relieved in most patients. Uh, they, they had an average pain score of four out of 10 before they got the treatment. Uh, and four weeks later, after the treatment, the average pain score was one. And I th something like two thirds of the patients, uh, the pain score was zero or one out of 10. I mean, it, it was a dramatic improvement after, you know, 10 years of constant pain. But the brains were physically changed. But it takes time to do that. And the rate at which the brains can rewire themselves uh, is different for everybody. Okay. So what's the refinement and the process been like? Like when you first conceived of this and tried it and it had success, I'm sure you were like elated. I'm sure the patients were too. Yeah. I, yeah, I was improved over time. Well, Dr. Kaplan gave me the original framework for how to think about this. I just assumed when I got to Portland, uh, Oregon, to be in private practice that there would be another Dr. Kaplan or two or three of them uh, here in town that could take over these patients as soon as I identified the issue. But there weren't any. You know, mostly it was cognitive behavioral therapy, which uh, isn't nearly good enough for these patients. And most of them came back and said, you know, we, I tried it. It didn't work. Now what do we do? And so I, there was nobody else. So I started to help them myself, building on the framework, improving the framework. But it took me, you know, I was climbing the learning curve for probably a good four or five years at a rate of 250 or 300 patients a year before I felt like, okay, I know what I'm doing. And it was, it was mostly about uh, 
you know, refining the techniques a little at a time, uh, you know, that exercise about having people imagine a kid they care about and growing up in the same home that they did, that was a, uh, a big development uh, in my practice. It really helped give people insight into uh, what they had been through. Figuring out that uh, people who didn't look the least bit emotional could have tremendous amounts of emotion that were buried. And that very first patient who'd been sexually abused hundreds of times, she was telling me that story in the same tone of voice you'd use to read a grocery list. I mean, you couldn't tell that there was any emotion there at all. If you didn't know better, you would assume that she had completely dealt with this issue and uh, was no longer troubled by it. And yet, you know, she was the one who was averaging one bowel movement per month, and it was strongly linked to this... Uh, terrible level of abuse that she'd suffered 25 plus years in the past. But you couldn't tell uh, that there was any emotion there. And it took me uh, several years to realize that many of these patients are like uh, dormant volcanoes. They've got, you know, huge amounts of pressure and, and heat and uh, boiling magma inside of them. But on the outside, you know, you wouldn't, they could be working at the desk right next to you and you couldn't tell. Yeah, that's crazy. So again, what advancements do you feel like you've made? Like where where are your efforts he heading so they could be even more efficacious or at least you can uncover more people that are having this problem? Like have you tried to interface with practitioners in various fields and given them your questionnaire and say, hey, when, when you don't know what's going on, instead of just endlessly testing, here's another option for you to present to your patients? Yeah, absolutely. We want people to know that in addition to organs and structures as a cause of pain or illness, that the brain can be a cause of pain or illness. And that if we evaluate for sources of stress as the reason for why the brain is doing this, it gives us a wonderful pathway toward uh, diagnosis and healing. Uh, my, the nonprofit at endchronicpain.org is, that's its whole mission, is to educate medical and mental health professionals and the public uh, about this condition. Um, and we have uh, conferences um, that are recorded. We have, you know, international conferences that we've been doing annually for a while now. And we have uh, webinar-based courses. Um, a new one was just posted uh, last month uh, that I'm very happy with. We have textbooks. Uh, we have self-help books for patients. We've got an online for, for people who choose to support the nonprofit as by becoming members. Uh, we've got a free course uh, that's available uh, for the members. It's mostly print, but with some videos. Uh, so a lot of resources there. And the people who have done this have been extremely appreciative. I, I think in particular about a small group of family doctors in medium-sized city on the East Coast who learned this along with the uh, their psychology consultant. And it absolutely transformed their practice. All of a sudden, 40% of their patients uh, who were sources of huge frustration for them uh, became very rewarding to work with because they could turn those illnesses around. Uh, one of those doctors took me aside at a conference and said, you know, these ideas have uh, put the joy back into my practice. And this was just from taking one of the courses, uh, you know, a three-hour, you know, introductory to an intermediate uh, course that we have on nchronicpain.org. And there's, you know, now a more advanced course on there. So they were so enthusiastic about it uh, that as of last summer, they had taught 70 other doctors in their community how to do this. So that's, you know, that's the kind of result that uh, my nonprofit is trying to achieve uh, 
everywhere. And we're getting there. I mean, I'm, I'm teaching in my medical school. I teach the, the university hospital uh, residency staff. I'm teaching in a couple of uh, graduate psychology programs, a physician assistant program. I gave uh, at least 30 presentations around the country and in Europe last year. There was one week in October. I did 13 hours of presentations in four different cities. So the, the enthusiasm for this is, is growing. People can see how powerful it is. Are you allowed to give people a self-diagnosis test or would that be uh, somehow violating some medical protocol? Can people use this again to like help themselves? Yes, that's that's the whole hope that we have for that self-assessment quiz, um, is that the more questions to which you answer yes, the more likely it is that if you have a pain or illness, that it's coming from one of these stresses and that the resources uh, that are listed on the website, they're all evidence-based. I mean, we've got randomized controlled trials now that, that show, like like the Boulder Back Pain Study, um, that are published in leading medical journals that document the effectiveness uh, and validity of this approach. So a good starting place is that quiz. And then if you find yourself going, yes, 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 I mean, the, the average person who fills out that questionnaire on our website answers yes to eight or nine questions. So those people definitely fall into a category that's likely to benefit from all of these ideas. I mean, it's hard to say in, in its totality, but is the medical profession more accepting of this nowadays? Like if you had come out with this 20 years ago, would it have just been, you know, a tooth and nail fight to get any acceptance? How are you seeing like the medical industry uh, change? Yeah, it, it's night and day. I mean, uh, even as recently as 15 or 20 years ago, uh, most of us who were doing this work, and there are, you know, dozens and dozens of us around the country, but most of us didn't know about that anybody else was doing this. Well, we came from all different backgrounds and we found our way to this work uh, through trial and error or through having a mentor uh, like I did. But in 2009, we uh, a bunch of us got together. There was a conference uh, that we look back on now as being like our Coachella Festival or Woodstock, if you're old enough to remember that one, where we all were finishing each other's sentences. And that was when we found the nonprofit, but that was very early days. The acceptance was was very limited. But today, I mean, we are rapidly approaching a tipping point. I mean, there are excellent gold standard research studies, which is what you need to persuade the the medical community that have come out of uh, Harvard. There's two from there. There's the Los Angeles VA study that was, you know, shockingly effective uh, even in a very difficult group of patients. Uh, the Boulder back pain study was. You know, dramatically effective with people, as I mentioned, who'd had back pain for a decade on average. And in four weeks, the pain scores just plummeted. And there's a study of fibromyalgia out of uh, Detroit. And new studies are going on. One of my uh, our board members on the nonprofit got $3 million from the National Institute of Health to do another study. So it's we're, we're finally uh, cracking the code of getting widespread acceptance. Are there parts of the medical industry that are more amenable? And are there ones that are less amenable for some reason? Gastroenterologists, for some reason, they're very amenable to this, like you and, you know, eye doctors or not. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, that gastroenterologists love to uh, put endoscopes inside people and, and look around. And I, and I love to do that, too. I mean, I did it with uh, two-thirds of my patients. Um, but in terms of um, all of these other things that I do, uh, there are not very many in my specialty uh, that see that as part of their job description. But family doctors uh, get a lot more 
psychology in their training program than most other physicians, and they've been hugely uh, accepting of it. They see a lot of patients with these issues, uh, you know, probably 40% of their practice on average, and they're delighted to have something positive uh, to be able to offer them. Other people, you know, if you are a spine surgeon, for example, and you make a good living from doing surgery on people with uh, low back pain, the idea that a significant fraction of your patients might get better with a psychological approach is going to be less appealing, let's put it that way. So there is definitely a a range of acceptance, but we're seeing it uh, more and more and more get used. And I think as the early adopters buy into it, uh, it's going to spread from there. Um, what about for um, you know psychology and maybe not psychiatry, but at least psychology? Um, I don't know if they do. I mean, do they tend to ask like, uh, "Hey, do you have any physical pains? Do you have stomach pains? Do you have trouble sleeping? Do you?" Or do people just bring that up? Like you mentioned earlier, they'll they tend to, I guess, either forget or don't want to bring up traumas like that because I guess it involves like you know some degree of like you were at fault. Do people you know? Let- let's say in a psychology session, and I have no idea how you get the answer to this, but do they talk about their physical symptoms? Are they ever asked about them? Or do they forget about them just in the same way they'd forget about talking about these? Well, definitely the mental health professionals who are a part of what I would call the psychophysiologic community, it's a big part of their practice because understanding the stresses that have produced a patient's physical symptoms adds considerably to how well you understand your client. If you don't inquire about the patient's physical symptoms and look into the issues that have created those symptoms, you're, you're missing a, a huge piece of that client's functioning. It's, I would make an analogy to watching a movie with the sound off. You know, you're just, you're, you're not getting a whole huge chunk of um, what is going on uh, with that patient. So definitely the mental health professionals that have found their way to the ideas that you and I have been talking about today, they love it. It massively enhances their effectiveness uh, with their patients. But most of those professionals in their training there was nothing about this. Um, you know, if a patient was to bring up the fact that they've had migraines or belly pain, the typical reaction for the mental health profession would be to, you know, go see your doctor. And then when they went to see the doctor and they got an evaluation and no biomedical cause was found, uh, then, you know, as far as everybody's concerned, uh, there's nothing more to do and the patient falls into a, the biggest blind spot in the healthcare system, unless they have a mental health professional that, that knows about this. So we are are teaching every mental health professional we can find uh, to do this because it's relatively easy for somebody that already knows psychology to graft these ideas uh, onto their practice. And when they do, it makes them far more effective. Well, very good. Do you have any books out or, uh, you know, anything coming from your organization that's going to be, you know, again, for the public uh, that they can look forward to? Or, or how can f- people follow up and um, take the quiz and find out more about your organization? Thanks for asking. Yeah. Endchronicpain.org is the website. And when you go there, you will uh, be easily find uh, the self-assessment quiz. And if you 
find from the quiz that these ideas might apply to you, then there are lots of resources. And especially if you choose to support the organization by becoming a member, you get a lot of price discounts, you get access to the, the free course. But we also have, um, there are self-help books that are available from a variety of authors, uh, you know, written without medical jargon. Even the uh, professional textbooks uh, that we put out are deliberately written without technical jargon so that anybody who enjoys reading about science can read those books and get a lot out of it. I'm, I'm hearing from many psychotherapists that they are prescribing these books uh, for their clients uh, if, if they're you know science-oriented and like to read about science. Our last two uh, international conferences were all recorded, and you can uh, watch those. We have two video-based courses uh, that, again, were designed for professionals, but deliberately created uh, without jargon so that you know anybody can take them and benefit from them. We have uh, at least half a dozen videos on the website of people who have recovered from this condition, talking about exactly how they did it. They're are being interviewed by me so that we have a, an interaction about uh, the process they went through so that people can understand how that works. So lots and lots of resources, lots and lots of hope for anybody who's listening to this that uh, is struggling with this. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, thank you for the work that you do, David. It's very, very important. And it's awesome that it's helping so many people. And um, I really appreciate you coming back on the podcast. Thank you, Rich. Uh, always a pleasure to speak with you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.